Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture now and turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And last week we started our series in 1 Corinthians, and uh, we looked at verses 1 to 3, and this week we'll be looking at verses 4 to 9. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and uh, I'll begin reading for us in verse 4. If you didn't bring your Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to look for a copy of the Scripture in the pew in front of you. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles provided there, you'll find our passage on page 952, 952. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together, okay? Let's pray. God, we thank You and praise You for this really sacred time where we are able to come before You in Your Word. And Lord, as we have prayed so many times before, we ask that You would help us. And Lord, as You have met us so many times before, as we have turned to Your Word, we pray that You would meet us this morning to correct us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to change us. So, Father, help us in this time. May we be faithful to Your Word. And as we are faithful to Your Word, may Your Spirit work among us and make us the people You want us to be. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul founded the church in Corinth. If you're interested in the account, you'll find it in Acts chapter 18. And as Paul had founded this church and then moved on, the church in Corinth struggled with living out their newfound faith in Christ. They struggled particularly doing so in a culture in the city of Corinth that was known for paganism, idolatry, and immorality. And so the church had any number of issues that were taking place within the church that Paul was concerned about. The church was divided. The church was marked by sexual immorality, spiritual apathy, the abuse of spiritual gifts in the context of corporate worship. There were all kinds of things that were taking place in the church in Corinth that Paul was concerned about and that he would have to address. And we'll be walking through some of those things as we walk through this series. But really, that is why the most striking feature in our passage this morning in verses 4 through 9 is that Paul begins in writing his letter to the Corinthians by being genuinely thankful for a church that is deeply divided and is marked by spiritual immaturity. And it's important for us to note here as Paul begins by saying, I thank God for you, as he's speaking to the church in Corinth, that Paul here is not uh, giving thanks to the church as an expression of just mere flattery. He's not kind of buttering them up or using psychological manipulation. You know, sometimes we witness that in life, don't we? 
Folks will offer a compliment or they'll say something positive about somebody or, because really they have some end that they're after. Maybe they want to make a sell or maybe they want to turn somebody in a certain direction and, and see things their way. And so they'll say something positive, but they don't really mean it. It's just kind of to you know, say it to, to shift someone's disposition, to bring somebody over to their side. But that's not what's happening here. You notice in verse 4 that Paul says, I thank God for you always. You see, even before Paul had begun to pen this letter, Paul was in his own personal life, in his own heart, was going before the Lord, praising and thanking God for the church in Corinth. He had a genuine thankfulness and gratitude for these people. This had such a tremendous impact as well on Paul's ability to care for the church in Corinth. Because he genuinely loved them, because he genuinely was thankful for them, it affected the way that he ministered to them. You see, Paul was not only aware of the weaknesses and imperfections that were present in the church in Corinth, but Paul had a genuine affection for them, and Paul could see, even in the midst of all the issues that they had, Paul could see genuine evidences of grace among the church in Corinth, and he praised God and rejoiced in what God was doing among them. Paul really provides us here in these opening verses with a wonderful example of how we should relate to one another as Christians, as a church body. Really, even more personal perhaps, he gives us a wonderful example here of how we should relate to our spouse, how we should relate to our children. Really, Paul presses upon us this question, will our own personal lives, will our own personal families, will our church body be marked more by a culture that is overly critical or by a culture that is grace-filled and grateful? In fact, the answer to that question will say a lot about our ability to effectively minister to one another and to others. So what I want us to see from our passage is really just this main one point. Paul offers God-centered thanks for God's grace in the Corinthian church. So if we had kind of a thesis statement for the message, that would be it. Paul offers God-centered thanks for God's grace in the Corinthian church. And then I want us to consider this point in two parts. First of all, we'll see God-centered thanks, and then secondly, God's grace. So notice, first of all, there in the passage, God-centered thanks. We see this in verse 4. Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul regularly would begin the letters that he wrote to the churches with some type of thanks, affirmation, praise for those to whom he is writing. And here we see that he has a genuine thanks for the Corinthians. He says, I give thanks for you. Now, one of the things that I suspect right out of the bat as we start talking about biblical kind of affirmation and biblical encouragement, a a gospel-centered ministry of affirmation and encouragement, is that some might object and say, well, listen, if if we take this too far, won't we become man-centered? Aren't we going to make people feel prideful? Aren't we going to shift the focus away from God and put the focus on man? We need to be careful about this. And to that objection, I guess I would just say a couple of things. 
The first thing I would say is that as we live in community with other Christians and as we minister to other believers, I believe that we will discover over time that most Christians don't struggle with being overly encouraged and aware of God's presence and work in their life. Most Christians, in fact, struggle with underappreciating and being unaware of God's presence and work in their life. In fact, just test it out in your own life. Would you say in your own life that you really struggle with just being too conscious of God's presence and activity and work in your life? Or do you struggle more often with being discouraged by not being able to perceive or being able to discern God's work in your life, discouraged that maybe God's grace is not changing you and you're not being transformed as quickly as you'd like. You know, this is one of the reasons why God has given us pastors. It's one of the reasons why God's given us, more importantly, the community of faith, the church. Is because we are to play this role in one another's life. We are to be, in some sense, the voice of God speaking into another, one another's lives, saying, listen, brother, listen, sister, I see God's grace at work in your life, and I'm encouraged. I praise God for what he's doing in your life. To bear witness to the work of God in one another's lives. That's what Paul is doing here. And and it just begs the question, if that's the case, I wonder, how are we doing? How are you doing? In terms of how you relate to your spouse, in terms of how you relate to your children, in terms of how we relate to one another as the body of Christ. And this is a convicting question for me. It's something I want to grow in because it's so important in terms of our care for one another. How are we doing in terms of seeing and identifying and bringing attention to God's grace at work in one another's lives? The other thing I would say to that objection is not only do Christians struggle more with being discouraged rather than being encouraged, but I would also say that affirming God's grace in another person's life does not diminish the glory of God, but brings God glory. You see, there is a way in which you can affirm others and seek to encourage others that would bring attention to man primarily. But notice the way that Paul gives thanks for the activity of God among the people of God in a way that brings glory to God. Notice the God-centered way in which Paul acknowledges God's grace in their lives. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. And really this entire section, if you just go through the verses, is just a focus, has such a focus on God and His work among them. You notice in verse 4, grace was given to them by God. You notice in verse 5, they are enriched in every way by God. You notice in verse 8, they will be sustained to the end by God. In verse 9, they are called into the fellowship with uh, Jesus Christ, God's Son, by God. 
So over and over again, you see this emphasis. Let me ask you, in these first few verses, as Paul seeks to encourage the church in Corinth, who gets glory? Corinth or God? God does. And so, my friends, as we seek to encourage one another, we should not be afraid to bring God into our ministry of affirmation and encouragement. We shouldn't be afraid to say, you know, I thank God for how He has given you a heart to serve in our nursery Sunday after Sunday. It is such an encouragement to me. You know, I thank God for how the Lord has given you a heart to welcome people into our church every morning and to to, to make them feel, to greet them and to make them feel welcome and make them feel accepted. I thank God for how God has given you grace to lead and to train and to shepherd your children because I see it as an example and it's something I want to emulate. And I praise God for how He's doing that work in your life. I praise God for how you have a heart to care for your elderly mother or father and all the sacrifices you make on an ongoing basis to make sure that they have the attention they need. It is such a blessing to me. You see, when we do that, fellow Christians are renewed. It's like life, right? Fellow Christians are renewed. They're encouraged. They're refreshed. And God is glorified. God is glorified when we give attention to, point out, and celebrate His work in one another's lives. So we see God-centered thanks. The second thing we see in our passage, and this is really will have three parts, but we see God's grace. Notice there in verse 4, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you, and here it is, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So here Paul tells us specifically what he's thankful for among the Corinthians, and it is the grace of God that is at work among them, the grace of God that was given to them in Christ Jesus. And then in the following verses, Paul is going to unpack this grace in three different aspects. God's present grace among them, God's past grace in their lives, and God's future grace in their lives. So notice, first of all, he focuses on God's present grace among them. He says in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. Here it is, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and in all knowledge. So as Paul thinks about the Corinthian church and as he thinks about God's activity and work in their midst, he is particularly thankful that God has shown his grace to them in that he has blessed them richly with spiritual gifts. Now, spiritual gifts will be a theme that we will see in this letter, and we will give more attention to it as we move further along in 1 Corinthians. But here at the onset, we see that Paul is specifically thankful that they have been blessed by God with spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are the ability and the empowerment to minister to others in the name of Christ. And Paul takes note of the fact that God has especially blessed this church richly with spiritual gifts. He highlights, in fact, the gifts of speech and knowledge. 
Later on, he will speak of these gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 11, where he says, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. But you know, one of the things that's really noteworthy here is that Paul begins this letter because later on he'll have to correct them, actually. If, if you know anything about the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul later will have to correct the Corinthians for their abuse of these very gifts, for the abuse of spiritual gifts, for the misuse of spiritual gifts, for using spiritual gifts for their own glory rather than for God's glory. But Paul here at the beginning of his letter begins not by diminishing the gifts that God has given to them, but thanking God and praising God for the gifts that God has given to them. He recognizes it as an evidence of God's grace among them and brings attention to it. We could say in this sense, Paul does not throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater, right? Oh, you Corinthians, y'all have such a mess on your hands with these spiritual gifts. I wish God would have never even given them to you. That might be the way we would be tempted to respond, right? But not the Apostle Paul. Rather, he takes note of them and openly praises God for evidences of his grace among the Corinthian church, specifically in giving them these gifts. And as I mentioned before, this is so important in terms of how we care for others, and really we can apply this to all the relationships of our lives. Even as you think about your marriage with your spouse, it's worthy to ask yourself the question, are you more prone to only see faults in your spouse or to see evidences of grace in your spouse? Or your children, are you more prone to only see their disobedience and disrespect or to see evidences of God working in their lives. This is something I'm particularly trying to grow in and be conscious of. You know, it's, it's a good thing to do as a parent, not just to admonish our children or correct them when they disobey, but to praise them and encourage them when they obey. Or how about as a, our church? Are we more prone to only see personality flaws in one another? Are weaknesses in our church body? Or are we prone to look for and identify and rejoice in all the ways that God is working in one another's lives and in our church body as a whole? I would encourage you to make it a regular practice to intentionally identify the work of God in another person's life. And let me say, not just in your head, right? That needs to be said especially for those of us who are more introverted like myself, you can like think it in your head and say, oh yeah, I see that, that's really good, and never say it, right? No, it's just like Paul here, it's to be intentional to see it and then to speak to it, to draw attention to it, to celebrate it for the glory of God and for the benefit of that person. I've been reading a book entitled Practicing Affirmation, actually I finished it a while back, but Sam Crabtree, he writes on this topic. The whole book is about this, really, and how especially Paul, but other writers in the New Testament practice this biblical ministry of affirmation and how we can emulate that. And there was a quote in the book that struck me I thought that was really helpful. He writes, quote, Think this way. Give so many affirmations as a pattern, a way of life, that you gain a reputation for it. You are known for your affirmations, not for your criticisms and your corrections. 
In Acts chapter 4, verse 36, Barnabas is called son of encouragement. And then he asks this very piercing question. What is my reputation? Mr. Krabby Pants? Old Lady Battle Axe? Miss Nitpick? We should unleash so many affirmations that those around us lose track. So it's not a matter of mathematical precision, but a spiritually organic way of living. He goes on to say, it's more like the weather. How much rain is enough? Well, that depends on how dry it's been and what you're trying to grow, a watermelon or a cactus. It's worth asking ourselves the question, if, if the growth the, the flourishing, the thriving of our spouse, of our children, of our local church, were dependent upon our God-centered, gospel-centered affirmation and encouragement. Would our spouse languish? Would our children be broken with discouragement? Would our church shrivel up or would they thrive and flourish with life? Paul takes note of the present work of God's grace among the Corinthians and he is not ashamed. In fact, he is so intentional to draw attention to it and to praise God for it. Now, not only does Paul draw attention to the present grace of God among the Corinthians, but he also draws attention to God's past grace at work among them. Look there in verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes this. I'll, I'll start in verse 5 just to give the context. He says he thanks God that in every way, verse 5, you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. Here it is, verse 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And commentators seem to agree here that what Paul is referring to is their conversion experience. So let me, let me follow me here the way Paul is, is reasoning here. Paul is saying that the spiritual gifts that they have received in verse uh, 5, that they are a confirmation to the testimony, to the witness of Christ that Paul preached among them. That's what he's saying in verse 6. So here's the idea. When Paul came to Corinth, he preached the gospel to them. And he's saying one of the confirmations that this gospel was true and that you embraced this gospel and this gospel changed your life was that then God gave you these spiritual gifts and they were evident among you. This was evidence that something had truly happened, that this gospel was true, that you had been changed by this gospel. And so Paul, in doing that, is rejoicing in the fact that the gospels changed them. That the gospels transformed them. That the gospel has made them a new community that's marked by these spiritual gifts in which they can minister to one another. Now let me just say, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, maybe you're not sure what you believe about the Christian faith, maybe you've wrestled for some time with whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, let me encourage you this morning that just as these Corinthians were changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you can be as well. 
You notice that in these verses, Paul offers a number of descriptions of what a true Christian is. In verse 5, he says that a Christian is one who has received the grace of God. In verse 6, he describes a Christian as one who has been spiritually enriched with the gospel and been given a spiritual gift to be used for God's glory. In verse 7, he describes a Christian as one who will stand blameless and guiltless before the Lord on the last day. In verse 9, he describes a Christian as one who, through faith, has been brought into fellowship or relationship with Jesus Christ, God's Son. This is what a Christian is. And you might ask the question, well, well how does that happen? How, how can I experience that in my own life? Well, the key is found in verse 4. If you look there, Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God, here it is, that was given you in Christ Jesus. That's the key. You know that in these first nine verses in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes reference to Jesus or explicitly mentions Him or makes reference to Him ten times. Ten times in nine verses. This is the same letter in which Paul says, when I was among you, I sought to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, Jesus is the key. His death, His resurrection. If you want to experience the blessings of salvation, if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, then you must find yourself in Christ. Because all the promises of God and all the blessings of salvation come to us in Jesus. You say, well, how can I experience that? Well, you can go to Jesus Himself. As Paul teaches us and as the Scriptures proclaim, Jesus is not dead. Jesus is living. You can go to Him. Trust in Him. Acknowledge, I am a sinner and I need a Savior and I trust in your death and your resurrection as the only hope for my salvation. And submit to Him as Lord. Confess Him to be the Lord of your life and surrender your life to His Lordship and He will save you. All the blessings of salvation that are mentioned here in these verses will be yours and it will be the cause for great rejoicing. Even as Paul celebrates the grace of God in the Corinthians' life. The third aspect of this grace, we've looked at present grace, past grace. The third aspect is future grace. Look there in verses 7 to 9, and Paul draws attention to this and thanks God for the future grace that they will experience. He says in verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this also is important to understand in terms of Paul's relationship to the Corinthians. Paul, in terms of his relationship to the Corinthians, was filled with hope for the Corinthians. He was filled with hope for them. You see in verse 8, speaking of Christ, he says, Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how could Paul say this of the Corinthian church? Their behavior at this time was anything but guiltless, was anything but blameless. But Paul says, I am confident that as you stand on the day of judgment before Jesus Christ, you will be declared blameless and guiltless. How could he say that? 
Well, it's because as we looked at last week, Paul's hope for the Corinthians is not based on their moral achievement, but based on God's free grace to them in Christ. They will be blameless not because of their superior moral character, but based on Jesus' perfect forgiveness that is granted to them through faith. Now, my friends, think about how this changed the way that Paul ministered to the church in Corinth. As Paul looked at all the problems that were going on in the, in the church in Corinth, Paul did not have a mentality like, all oh, these people will never change, right? These people are just stuck. They'll never become anything. I mean, just look at the mess that we have here in this church. Paul doesn't have that, that mentality, right? Why? He's filled with hope for them. And why is he filled with hope for them? Because he knows that God has already acted in their lives by grace. He's currently acting in their lives. And there's evidences of grace in their life. And he knows that Christ is committed to them all the way to the very end. And so he's filled with hope for them. And it changes the way he speaks about these issues. It changes the way he ministers to them. It changes the way he cares for them. And listen, my friends, if you have that perspective towards one another, if we have that perspective with one another and towards others, it will transform the way we minister to others. So that we're not marked by chronic frustration, but we're marked by hope, hope in the gospel, hope in Christ's work in our lives. Notice Paul gives two grounds for why he has this hope in verse 9. He says that they will stand guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the very next thing he says, the, the grounds for his hope are twofold. The first is in verse 9, God is faithful. That's why he's hopeful for these Christians. God is faithful. He says something similar to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul be kept blameless or guiltless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You see how Paul had hope for the churches? His hope ultimately wasn't in their maturity. His hope ultimately wasn't even in their character. His hope finally was in God. The faithfulness of God. God would keep them to the end. God was at work in their lives. And then notice the other ground for the hope that he has for these Christians. Not only the faithfulness of God, but the call of God. He says in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this idea of calling, we'll come back to it in chapter 1, but it's a very important theme in chapter 1. So way back in verse 1, we saw that Paul was called to be an apostle. In verse 2, we see that the church in Corinth was called to be saints. In verse 9, here we see that they are called into the fellowship of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And later on in chapter 1, we'll see that Paul picks up this theme of calling again, that they are calling, that they are chosen by God. And as Paul uses this idea of calling, as he speaks of this concept of calling, for the Apostle Paul, this is not so much an invitation that God extends as much as it is a summons. Theologians refer to it as the effectual call of God. That this call, that because God is a sovereign God, when He issues forth this call, it accomplishes its purpose. 
And this call is guaranteed by the purpose and will of God. And so you see how Paul is reasoning here. If God has sovereignly called you into relationship with His Son, He's not going to come up short. He's not going to call you and then leave you. But if He's called you, genuinely called you into the fellowship of His Son, and if He's transformed you and changed you, and there's evidences of that because there's spiritual gifts in your life, and you're being changed and transformed into the image of His Son, I am confident that He will finish that calling, that He will complete it even to the end. You see, their eternal security was based upon the call, the sovereign call of God in their lives. Now, here's this church struggling in so many ways. And here's the great Apostle Paul writing to them. And he's just like doting over them, right? He's just rejoicing in God over them. I thank God for you because of God's grace in your life. Present, past, and future. I thank God for His unmerited favor, for His unmerited love showered upon you that is evident in so many ways. How does that transform the way we view ourselves? How does that transform the way we view one another and the way we minister the gospel? In the book I was reading... um, Practicing affirmation, the author actually points to a modern-day illustration to show the power of affirmation in other people's lives. Um, And actually, he points to the example of the Star Wars movies. I know uh, many of you have probably seen the new Star Wars movies. If you haven't, I'm sure you're aware that the Star Wars movie is out now. And uh, he points to the fact that Lucas, who is the author of the Star Wars series, knows the powerful influence of praise in another person's life. In particular, in the episode Revenge of the Sith, Lucas writes the story in such a way that Senator Palpatine, who is kind of the evil villain in the story, that Senator Palpatine in large part uses affirmation to seduce young Anakin Skywalker to the dark side. Let me just give you a few lines and illustrate this. Senator Palpatine, speaking to young Anakin, says, The council doesn't seem to fully appreciate your talents. They know your power will be too strong to control. Again, he says to young Anakin, You've been searching for a life greater than that of an ordinary Jedi, a life of significance, a life of conscience. Again, he says to young Anakin, I can feel your anger. So he even praises him for that which is evil in his life. We don't want to emulate that, right? But there he is doing it. I can feel your anger. It gives you focus. It makes you stronger. You have great wisdom, Anakin. Anakin begins to do some of his bidding, and Palpatine responds to him, Good, good. The force is strong with you, Anakin. A powerful Sith you will become. Again, Anakin does his bidding and Palpatine responds, Good, good, you have done well, young Anakin, my new apprentice. Do you feel your power growing? And then Anakin responds, Yes, my master. Palpatine has won him over to the dark side. Now, Palpatine, in many ways, we do not want to emulate that, right? He's being manipulative. He's using affirmation. And affirmation can be used for evil ends. 
But at the same time, when affirmation is God-centered, when affirmation is gospel-centered, when affirmation is directed towards the right ends, we should not underestimate the power of godly, loving, genuine affirmation in one another's lives. For God to use that to change others and refresh others and renew others and influence others for the sake of the gospel. What kind of culture do we want to build in our own families, in our own church? I hope by God's grace, increasingly, it's this culture of gospel-centered, God-centered, biblical affirmation that encourages us on our path to become more and more of all that God would have us to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that Paul had for the Corinthian church. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to have that similar love. Help us to be humble enough and aware enough of your work in our lives and the work that you are doing in the lives of those around us. And Father, as we encourage each other, as we speak grace into one another's lives, Lord, we pray that you would use it to strengthen us, to encourage us, to make us thrive and flourish for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.